This is the Top Agents Playbook Podcast, episode 57. Welcome to the Top Agents Playbook Podcast, the very best tips, tools, and ideas from real estate's top performers. Now, here's your host, Ray Wood. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome back to the show. I'm walking the trail. That's where I seem to do most of my recording nowadays, or my intros, walking the trail along uh, behind our cottage on beautiful Four Mile Lake in the Kawarthas in Ontario, Canada. And it is the summer that just keeps on giving. It's another beautiful day, 26, 27. So uh, the weather just has been amazing. This week's interview is with Gary Nessner, and it's my second interview with Gary. If you want to check out my first interview, it was uh, all about negotiating. Uh, it's uh, topagentsplaybook.com forward slash, I think it's 34, episode 34, but I'll put, the sh- I'll put the link to that first interview with Gary in the show notes for this episode. Gary is a former FBI hostage negotiator. He's also the best-selling author of a book called Stalling for Time, My Life as a FBI Hostage Negotiator. So uh, he has a wealth of experience. You might recall if you've listened to last week's episode with former US Navy SEAL Leif Babin, uh, we talked about how Leif and his partner Jocko Willink wrote a book and the book's called Extreme Ownership and they're relating their battlefield lessons to business and to life. I found that was a, was fascinating speaking with Leif. He's such a great guy, gave away so many great ideas. And in this interview, Gary Nessner, the former FBI negotiator, does exactly the same thing. So he applies the lessons that he's learned from his time as a negotiator with the FBI to business and to life. And you know, in real estate, we're talking large sums of money. Things can go off the rails from time to time. So Gary shares some excellent tools as to how we can handle conflict and how we can uh, resolve conflict and how we can diffuse a situation where, you know, tempers are getting heated and voices are raised, etc. So I know you're going to love this interview. Um, just before we go, special thanks, of course, to uh, Locked On, who have supported me right from day one. That noise is actually a red squirrel, or tree rats as they call them here. So couldn't work out what it was for the first five years I was here, but that's what it is. Sort of like the uh, Canadian version of a kookaburra laughing at you. Um, so yeah, where was I? Just saying thanks uh, to my partners at Locked On for supporting the show. I also want to say a big thank you to you for listening, for tuning in. You have a heap of choice when it comes to listening to real estate agent podcasts or podcasts for realtors if you're in North America. So I want to say thank you. Uh, I also want to say thank you for those of you who take the trouble to send me a message. I respond to every message. Um, If I get an email or a Facebook message, uh, I just love getting those. If you haven't had the opportunity already, what I would really appreciate is if you went over to iTunes and left me a little review as to what you thought about the show. Uh, So this content is for you to help you get more listings and make more sales and take your real estate career to the next level. So I love doing these podcasts and I love sharing what I know and I love being, I guess, a conduit for you to 
learn more from these experts that we line up. Very excited about an interview I'm doing next week with uh, Nashville agent Josh Anderson. Writes some amazing numbers. Team of four, I think. I'm just speaking to Josh this morning, lining up the interview. So really looking forward to getting into that. All right, I think you're going to love this interview with Gary. Let's do it. Well, Gary Nessner, welcome back to the Top Agents Playbook. How are you doing? Great, Ray. It's good to be back with you. Well, I'd like to say a special thank you. Uh, I think I mentioned uh, an email I sent you uh, a week or so back that your or our episode, which we did back in February, uh, and while we're talking, I'll, I'll, I'll give everybody the, um, the address of that of that episode and the number so they can go back and check it out because we talked about uh, the specifics there and, and your your former your former role I guess as an FBI lead negotiator or you headed up the negotiating team for the FBI I think for ten years so uh, I was keen to um, take this a step further because that episode was so popular I also had quite a few emails from people saying you know love to hear more more about Gary's adventures uh, in the FBI and relate some of these I guess extreme circumstances to uh, to our world of real estate I'm interested today to talk about conflict resolution and that's something obviously that you've had uh, a lot of experience with do you have some set guidelines when you're when you're walking into a into a situation like that to try and defuse the situation yeah i i think uh basically when we're dealing with someone that's angry upset confused um in a hostile mood we have to lower the tension we have to lower the emotional content of the interaction before we can begin to positively uh, positively influence their behavior and that's always the challenge when someone's extremely mad uh, you, you know you know the, the the picture of the red face and the foaming at the mouth kind of approach you're really unlikely to be able to be persuasive with someone like that in, until you get through this uh, um, emotional state that they're in. And we go about that generally by remaining calm and keeping control of our voice and patiently uh, acknowledging the individual's point of view, letting them know we want to understand how they feel about things, what's going on, and, and never arguing with them. But indicating we hear them. And we don't just say we hear them, we demonstrate it by repeating it back, paraphrasing it, whatever. And this has a powerful effect on uh, even very angry individuals because they often feel unappreciated, misunderstood, uh, no one pays attention to them. And now you've got uh, a negotiator that's saying, hey, you know, I, I want to hear more about that. It sounds like um, this situation that occurred in your life was 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 pretty traumatic for you and, and that you really feel as though someone didn't treat you very well. So it's hard to argue with that kind of approach. And what we do through uh, the patient uh, passage of time is we continue to demonstrate that uh, we're not there to make their day worse. We're there to help them if we can, and, and we're worthy of their respect. And it's a very powerful uh, set of tools we use to, uh, to exert influence um, in, in social exchanges. If yeah okay well if, if you were training somebody to be an FBI negotiator and and I guess you're going into a situation um, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is that in in many cases the subject is is not really lo- logical all logic's gone out the window there could be mental illness at play uh, drugs alcohol all sorts of things where do you start how do you defuse it 
Well, yeah, you mentioned drugs and alcohol or someone with a significant psychosis. Those are the most challenging ones for sure. But typically, uh, in an overwhelming majority of the cases, we're, we're simply dealing with high emotion, anger. Some uh, circumstance has occurred in this person's life, his personal life, his work life, an argument with a neighbor over a border or boundary. It could be any number of things. And and they've exploded with rage and anger because they feel like they're the victims and they're misunderstood. And what we have to do is is let them know that they have a point of view that we want to acknowledge and we want to understand. But it's really hard for two people to argue when only one is doing the arguing. So when we present ourselves as as not there to argue with them or to tell them they're wrong or they're misperceiving events, um, it it makes us uh, worthy of their respect and makes them more willing and open to chat with us. I mean that's really the key. Obviously in uh, in work for for the people that are listening to this podcast, you, you want to try to. Uh, have good relationships so you avoid these conflicts, but inevitably in life, conflicts do arise. And then the goal really needs how do we get this back to a, a normal functioning level of, of interaction and move past this uh, uh, blip in the road that's caused us to be uh, quite angry at each other and therefore unable to work together successfully. Can you think of some, um, and I should mention your book, Stalling for Time, a terrific read. Uh, I mentioned it obviously in the last in the last podcast. Uh, I, I think it's uh, the book's title is Stalling for Time, uh, My Life as an FBI Negotiator uh, by yourself, uh, a, a best-selling book. It's, a, it's an awesome read. And I'd, I'd advise anybody who's interested in, in improving their negotiation skills or conflict resolution to check this book out because um, there are just some ex- extreme examples here that can apply really to everyday situations, you know, like there's people in traffic with road rage and uh, they're, they're, you know, in real estate, we might have a client or, or a buyer or a seller or somebody who's who's super upset with us. So I think what happens to the layperson who's probably not experienced in this, the inclination is to not let them have their say. The inclination is to is to start to speak louder and more forceful and use the wrong language, which just continually inflames the situation. Can you think of some real life examples or a real life example where you were involved and the situation around that and how you were able to to uh, to defuse it? Well, it's a good example, that one that I wasn't directly involved, but it may illustrate this as simply as anything can. And that is the FBI was uh, attempting to arrest a, a, a fellow who had committed some very serious crimes. He'd murdered someone, and um, uh, he was located hiding in a home. And the FBI is trying to get him to surrender, and he's barricaded in this home and threatening to shoot anybody that tries to come in and get him. And, um, y- you know, in, in an effort to try to um, convince him to cooperate – uh, we were confronted constantly with the fact that this guy had a very low regard for law enforcement. His his history with law enforcement wasn't particularly uh, favorable from his point of view. So it was a really tough nut to crack. But the FBI negotiator at the scene uh, learned that despite all this man's other problems, he was a competent carpenter. So the FBI agent decides uh, at, at some juncture in, in the brief conversations to to ask the man about carpentry. Uh, starting the discussion by saying that the agent wanted to build a tool shed behind his house and was asking this um, criminal 
you know, how he would suggest this tool shed be built. Now, this did a couple things. First of all, is this highly educated FBI agent is deferring to this this individual who didn't have much formal education and indicating that this man had an expertise the agent didn't. So that's a sign of respect. And the man began to talk about something in his comfort zone, what he was proficient at and good at. And the agent kept discussing it. Well, how, what kind of wood would you use? How big should it be? And how should I take care of the, the whether I make the roof out of so forth and so on? I won't go through all the details. But of course, the on-scene commanders are getting rather impatient that so much time is being taken up by uh, what, what seems like an extraneous discussion, not relevant to the matter at hand. But what was happening was a relationship was being built. Instead of talking about the crisis, come out. No, I'm not coming out. Well, we're going to come in and get you. If you come in and get me, I'll kill you. Now, instead of all that, yeah. they're talking about this project. And eventually, uh, the agent, by using this technique, uh, created a bit of a, a empathic bond with this individual. And the guy said, you know, I've enjoyed talking to you. I think, I think I'm ready to come out now. And, and that's because of the relationship that was built through this patient building of a bridge between these two people at very opposite sides of the initial argument. And, and I think that's a good illustration of what we try to do. We're not trying to trick people, but we're trying to get them to realize that, uh, you know, we are there to help them and we want to see them come out of this alive. Obviously, there's some situations that are very uh, volatile and very desperate, and there may have already been loss of life, and that raises the stakes considerably. But even in those cases, we have a, a pretty high success rate by patiently letting this person know that we are there, we can't leave, but we really want to work with them to make sure no one else gets hurt, that they don't get hurt, and that can we resolve this peacefully. And it's a, it's a very proven technique. Yeah, when well that that that's an extreme uh, extreme example. I can't ask for a better one than that, I guess, because the stakes are pretty high if we're talking about lives. Um, when you're in that situation and you're trying to you're trying to diffuse it and you're trying to you're looking for a positive outcome or the best possible outcome, um, is is this is this a situation where if the person's you know ranting on, are you inclined to let them go and let them? let them run out of steam? Well, it depends. Uh, you know, I, I was at the Waco incident and and spent some time talking with David Koresh, a, a case that I think most of your listeners will be familiar with. And David Koresh had certainly a proclivity for going off on very lengthy, um, what would seem disjointed religious uh, ideological chats. And we, we certainly didn't try to cut those overly short. However, we realized very quickly that when he would spend an hour sermonizing to us, we really weren't able to accomplish very much in terms of having a, a positive interaction. So what we would gently do is move him on to something more secular, something more uh, relevant to everyday life, and found him fairly receptive to that. And in fact, we were able to get 35 people out of Waco uh, the first half of the incident when I was leading the negotiations. And none of those were uh, releases that took place when we were uh, talking about religious ideology or his very strong religious perspectives. So sometimes, to answer your question, we have to gently steer the uh, the person away from 
what clearly is perhaps a dead end in terms of the conversation and see if we can bring them back to something a little bit more reality based. And in that case, we had some good luck, obviously, that the situation did not end the way anybody wanted it to uh, further down the road. Yeah, well, um, just to bring people up to date, if you're not familiar with that, I think there were seven... Um, he ended up lighting a fire or his followers lit a fire. I think 76 people died. We're talking Waco, Texas uh, in, um, I think it finished in April 1993. Did did you actually speak to Koresh yourself? I did. Uh, I was one of the first negotiators at the scene. I flew out from Washington and um, the first night before the rest of my team arrived, it's Normally, at that point in my career, it wouldn't have been my job to be the, the person on the phone, but to lead the team and to develop the strategy that we were going to use. But in this instance, I did end up speaking with him, um, you know, uh, for, for, for many hours. And, uh, you know, he, he wasn't uh, mentally or psychi- uh, psychotic. He wasn't uh, mentally ill. You could talk with him. And what we found was uh, that when you talk to him in a sort of a down-to-earth way, you were more likely to succeed in, in, in our goals than if we tried to convince him that his uh, religious views were, you know, perhaps uh, incorrect. Um, I know some religious scholars, for example, criticized the FBI saying we should have convinced him that his interpretation of the book of Revelation was was not the commonly accepted interpretation. And my answer to that has always been, well, that that's a fool's game because David David Koresh was constantly uh, reinterpreting his 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 beliefs. So we couldn't match him in, in citing Bible chapter and verse, but we, we steered him away from those topics and that's when we had success. So you believe that he was, he was sane through the whole process? I do. I think, I think, um, you know, many people have a mistaken belief that he he was a, you know, sort of a Charles Manson type, uh, guy. He, he, David Kresh was very manipulative. He, like like many leaders of so-called cults, he uh, he controlled every facet of everyone's life inside. He he had exclusive sex with the women and made everybody give him his property. And he lived in air conditioning and comfort, and everybody else lived pretty frugally. So they really believed in him. Uh, he was, I think, most people would describe him as essentially a con man who just happened to use religion as his vehicle to control people. I'm not suggesting that he didn't really buy into a lot of his religious beliefs, but I think the primary motivator for David Koresh was to be, you know, the virtual king of his world. And, uh, you know, that and and other things made it an extremely, perhaps the most challenging situation anyone's ever faced. Well, what, was the was the cause behind the siege? I guess, and I'll I'll get to my point with this. But um, the cause behind the siege was that his his authority and was threatened because the the there was a breakaway group that uh, that didn't want to be Branch Davidians anymore. Is that is that basically correct? Well, uh, not really, because that those events that you just described took took place earlier, but at the time of the Waco incident, he was clearly in charge of the, the mainstream branch Davidians and the compound that they lived in. What sparked the incident was um, an investigation conducted by another federal agency, the Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms Agency, that um, had received information that David Koresh, uh, as part of uh, a scheme to earn money, was uh, illegally modifying weapons to make them automatic weapons and was selling them. Okay. And there was also charges of, of child sexual abuse. So 
um, they were executing arrest warrants and search warrants, and um, the Davidians got word that they were coming and were waiting. And, of course, that terrible shootout occurred on February 28th of 93 that left uh, uh, 17 uh, uh, ATF agents wounded, and I think four were killed, and, and a number of uh, uh, Davidians were killed. So so we started off when the FBI got there with a pretty, pretty terrible situation. Uh, um, things were pretty tense, and— once violence has occurred, it, it it's really challenging to get things back on a normal course where you can discuss things logically and and move forward. But we were able to do that. In in your discussions with Koresh, did you uh, and you cited the example of of um, of the fellow who'd who'd uh, who'd bailed himself up and and was threatening to to kill himself or kill somebody uh, in your discussion and and they used the the negotiator found out that he had an interest in carpentry. Were you able to access anything like that with Koresh? Um, to to some extent, uh, David Koresh. Uh, for those who or somewhat familiar with the incident, was um, fancying himself a rock star. And um, he had a band uh, inside his compound, uh, rock musicians. And so if you could talk to him about some of those things, um, it, it was an area that he was greatly interested in. And it, and it uh, in a few instances, helped us to create a more positive relationship so that uh, the negotiator who's talking to him at the time could could move beyond the immediacy of the crisis and talk about something of that, that entailed less conflict. I guess that strategy is probably more of a more of a disruption than anything else. It it probably, I, I guess they've got a, they've got um, they've got an outcome that they're looking for. You've got an outcome that you're looking for. So in our, I'm trying to apply this to our world of real estate, and and things can get pretty heated when we're talking large sums of money. You can find the nicest uh, church-going grandma turn into a into a wounded snake and uh, be, be very angry. So um, specifically, I guess, some strategies around around that, I'd be interested in your opinion. If, in, uh, if, if you're speaking with somebody in a, I guess, more in a commercial sense, what would be some of the things that, that you'd suggest that, that we could try to, to, uh, to diffuse a situation or where you've got a really angry client like that? I think one of the biggest mistakes uh, we tend to make in the United States, and I, I'm sure that applies to uh, many countries in the West, is we want to get right down to business. We're, <laughs> we rush right in there and we want to tackle the problem and solve the problem right away. And I guess going back to my carpenter uh, fugitive story, sometimes it's best to come about it from a different angle. So if, if you have a, you know, you know you're going to have an acrimonious uh, price point, I would try to um, bring the, uh, the client uh, in a discussion about the positive aspects of the property or um, the the issues surrounding it, the the amenities that that are what they're looking for, get them vested into working with you and and hearing your sound advice on the product before you get into the acrimonious price point. Um, yep. be, because people, uh, what I've learned since I left the government in two thousand three and have done a, a fair amount of consulting is. It's all about relationship. Everything is relationship. We all want to work with and give our business, uh, sustainable business and maintain business with people that we respect and we like. There are uh, competitors in most businesses and 
uh, even uh, a competitor might offer a, a, a lower price point, but if the client feels really comfortable with the agent uh, that they've been working with and they have a trusting relationship, more often than not, that's going to trump the the price point. People are willing to pay a little more to have the confidence that, you know, this this particular person I've been dealing with has always treated me fairly. They've been responsive to resolving problems when when they have arisen. I'm confident I can pick up the phone and get the service I need from this person, and I don't care if they cost a little bit more. This is who I'm sticking with. It's a powerful thing, and I think a lot of times we focus too much on just the, the end game and the price point. Um, and I think um, if if your listeners would focus more on relationship building, I think they'll find that it'll pay off uh, far more dividends in the long run. Well, the relationships are so important. Often, I guess in our in our um, careers as as real estate agents, we often don't get a lot of opportunity to 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 build a relationship. If uh, if say, for example, if you call me and give me an offer on a property. Uh, and and I know that that offer is not going to be acceptable. I guess then we're getting into into the negotiating negotiating sphere as well. But it's always a challenge to be able to handle that first uh, that first offer in many cases. And and things you know things can get pretty tense can get pretty tense around that. So I think that's some I think that's some really good advice is to build a relationship as quickly as you can. Some of the questions that you know you might say if you get an offer is you know what else have you been looking for? What have you seen that you like? Uh, let me see if I can work with you to to get this across the line. I mean, you've got somebody who's, who's you know, trying to purchase. And, and, the, and again, I guess the struggle that we have in real estate is that we've often got sellers that are looking for more than the property's worth and buyers that want to buy it for less than the property's worth, which is, which is how we make a living, I guess. The episode I talked about was, uh, was number 34, uh, where, where that, that was my, my interview with you. That's been, boy, shared a heap of times. And it was in that uh, on that episode in the show notes that uh, you put a, a little cheat sheet together or, or a checklist, twenty five keys to help exert a positive influence on others. So, I know I know that that document's been been downloaded a, a heap of times. So, but I'll put that in the show notes for this as well, and also where people can grab your book, Stalling for Time. So, um, have you thought about writing any <laughs> any more books on uh, on 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 other subjects related to your uh, your experiences? I have, and and I've I've started a few. I'm I'm not sure, um, uh, you know, how far I will go with them. Um, I feel pretty good about stalling for time, and sometimes wonder whether I need to add to it, but. Uh, you know, I'm I'm always uh, kind of looking at ways to uh, think about things differently. But let me make a comment on something you, you said earlier, and this might help your listeners. If, if I was being interviewed as a real estate agent for a client, yep. uh, uh, I think it's important to think about if you're the seller or the purchaser and you're interviewing various agents, what is it that you're looking for? And I think um, – if, for example, an agent sat down with a couple that's getting ready to sell their house, uh, and I would start off by saying, listen, um, you know, w- we can work together to come up with the right price point and, and see how we can best market this, but you need to know something up front. If, if I think, um, you know, if I think what decisions you've made is problematic, I'm, I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you what I think. It doesn't mean I'm criticizing you, and it doesn't mean that you have to accept my view on it, 
But one of the things you're always going to be able to depend on from me is I'm going to give you my honest opinion. That can sometimes lead to some uncomfortable discussions. But if you're comfortable with that, I think it serves you best that you have somebody that's uh, really working at your best interest. And, and if I was to hear something like that, I that would come across positively for me. Uh, you know, maybe there's some buyers or sellers out there that, that, that want more control and don't want that, but I want somebody that's going to have experience and it's going to tell me what I need to hear, even if sometimes I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, there's definitely, I think that's, I think that's great advice by the way. And thank you. Uh, and we, we get, I mean, I know nothing would compare to the uh, situations that you've been involved in, but we do get ourselves into some pretty interesting uh, one-on-ones and, and standoffs with, with our clients, both buyers and sellers, like I said, when large sums of money are, are, are involved. So I think some of the advice that you've given us today and, and some of these real-life situations of, of examples are, are very, very telling. So um, I'd like to say a special thank you for coming back onto the show, uh, and um, I'm going to look forward to keeping in touch. Very good, Ray. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Gary. All right. All the best. The Top Agents Playbook Podcast is proudly sponsored by Locked On, real estate's best software. For show notes from this episode, free downloads, your Locked On Discount for Life link, and Ray's blog, head over to topagentsplaybook.com.